Tis the season for stories set at Christmas time. This is Chapter 7 of Author Talks with Lisa T. And coming up, I chat with author Janice Hallett, whose new Christmas novella, The Christmas Appeal, features some old friends from her debut novel. Plus, we'll chat about her new mystery, set to be published in the new year. So I'm really excited because usually I get to speak to authors only about one book, but this time around I get to talk to you about two. The holidays are coming up, so let's start with the the Christmas novella. Uh, this is The Christmas Appeal, a novella. Um, it features the troupe of characters uh, and actors, troupe of actors, I should say, that you introduced to us in your debut, The Appeal. This time they're putting on a Christmas play, but of course there's a murder that threatens to like not let the curtain go up on the show. Why did you want to revisit this group in this way? Well, do you know, I I didn't. I, I thought the story of the appeal was over when I finished that book. And I, I thought that right up until last August when my editor suggested I write um, a Christmas novella, or at least I, that I try to write a Christmas novella and see what happens. Now, I um, I sat down thinking, well, it was August, it was bright sunshine, people were in their swimwear outside. I put the Christmas records on, the, well, showing my age there, I put a Christmas CD on, <laughs> that's also showing my age. Um, so I played lots of Christmas music and I started to write something and it came out as, um, we call them a Christmas round robin, but it's a Christmas letter that people tend to send in their Christmas cards saying what their family have been up to uh, all year. And I wrote one of those. And it suddenly occurred to me that this was a character I'd written before. It was a character from The Appeal. So I thought, wow, this character was quite a small character in that book. And I thought, well, goodness, is is this their time to shine? So I, I went with it. And my goodness, it was like visiting old friends. It was like coming home to go back to that world that I'd spent so long. It took me a year to write the appeal. So it was just wonderful to be back there with those characters four years after the events of the appeal. And, you know, we catch up on all of the news, how the area has changed um, and what hasn't changed. It, it was wonderful. And I enjoyed it so much. I, I just, well, I just hoped that readers would too. I, I for what I, I enjoyed those characters the first time around and the second time around, uh, it's exactly like you said. It was like checking in with old friends and finding out what everybody's been up to, how the events of the last book maybe affected some people or didn't, and how the it's you really play with the pa- the power dynamics of this small group and how there's this struggle between who gets to be the leader of the Fairway Players. That's right. It's it's, it's now a democracy, so they they vote for their leader, and at the moment, Sarah Jane and Kevin who people will remember from the appeal if, if they've read it, um, that they are now, they've been voted as, as lead. So they get to direct the plays and they're in charge. But Celia and Joel are snapping at their heels. They challenged them and they narrowly lost the vote. So, the, yeah, the politics of the fairway players are bubbling under. I should say that you don't have to have read the appeal to read the Christmas appeal. If you have, you'll recognise you know, characters and, and things, but you don't have to have. I love this. Um, I think it's a uniquely British tradition of of doing like little Christmas stories with characters. I mean, you see it with a lot of the British TV shows. There's always a, a Christmas song contest. And we don't have that really here in the States. So it's always nice to kind of co-op your tradition a little bit and get to enjoy like a little Christmas setting book. 
Yeah, it's only since um, the Christmas Appeal launched in America, I realised you don't actually have pantomimes over there and that that's a kind of a different cultural thing for you. Very, um, I think it's British, but it does have a European background. It's just very, um, they're for children, but adults love them too. They're Christmas and New Year plays that usually retell um, like a fairy story, Cinderella, Jack and the Beanstalk, Puss in Boots. And they're really raucous. They're generally under-rehearsed. There's songs, there's music, there's audience participation. There's, you know, children taking part in it as they're watching. You know, it's it's wonderful. It's a real experience. And um, so I suggest if there are any uh, Americans in, um, you know, in the UK around Christmas and New Year, if you can catch a panto, do, because it's a real uh, British tradition. And, yeah, we're, we're putting on this um, children's play for Christmas with the with the fairway players and, uh yeah, it's it's always it's always fun, but this particular um, year for the fairway players, it's rather more than that because, as you say, a, a body appears, and uh, yeah, it turns quite dark. Yeah, a body appears in a very very large prop. <laughs> so, but, that, <laughs> but that's we won't give too much away. So you didn't intend to to write about this group again. Does that mean this is the last we'll see of them, or never say never? Never say never. Never, ever say never. Because, um, yeah, because I didn't realise I would be coming back to them now. And that means, well, you know, the gates are open. I can't put that genie back in the bottle. Although their numbers, a, a are, their numbers are dwindling a little bit as, uh, <laughs> as these murders they roll are. Poor fairway players. that They're having to recruit um, new members from local um, new build housing estates because their numbers are dwindling. So, yeah. But, I mean... Um, I, I would say watch this space, but not in the imminent future, because I know my my next couple of novels are not set in in Lockwood. But uh, absolutely, now now I've uh, written the Christmas Appeal, I'd, I'd happily go back to to Lockwood. So it's it's my happy place now. <laughs> well, I'm for one, I'm happy to hear that. You do have a, a new book that doesn't involve this troupe coming out in January, right on it. I'm right on this Christmas book's heels. Uh, it's called The Mysterious Case of the Alberton Angels. Once again, it's it's written in your unforgettable style, which I'll get into a little bit later because I have questions. But why don't you set the story up for us? Indeed, yes. The mysterious case of the Alperton Angels is about two true crime authors who are locked in competition to find a key interviewee. Now, this uh, person was a baby 18 years ago when they were almost sacrificed by a cult that thought they were the Antichrist. But luckily, no, they weren't sacrificed. Their teenage parents escaped the cult and all disappeared into the care system. They were all underage, so no one ever knew who they were. Now, 18 years later, of course, that baby is an adult and can now tell their story. So these two true crime authors who are journalists, they come from um, a news background, they're hot on each other's heels to try and find this interviewee because whoever can find and 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 get the baby, as they they say to themselves, whoever can get that baby, will get you know the hit book of the year. So um, fast forward a bit without any spoilers. Amanda and Oliver, our two uh, writers, are obliged to work together. Let's say, and um, they ha- they have a bit of history between them, but together they they try and get to the bottom. Of, of that particular story of this cult that wanted to sacrifice a baby as the as the Antichrist. And the more people they interview from that time, the more witnesses they speak to, 
the more inconsistencies emerge and the more they can see this as rather more than people think it, it was. It's, it's a crime, it's a, a historical crime that everyone thinks they know. But Amanda and Oliver realise that no one knows exactly what was going on there. And um, they determine to find out exactly what it was. That's probably all I can say at the <laughs> moment, except that at the beginning of the book, we're given a dilemma. Right at the beginning, we're told that all that we're about to read has come out of a safe deposit box. It's all the research material that Amanda had for her book. So it's all of her interview transcriptions, her notes, her trial chapters that she started writing, her emails, her messages, little scripts that she wrote herself when she was um, making phone calls, pretending to be who she wasn't. It's all sorts of strange things that we're going to be reading. And we're given this dilemma, we read it and we have to make a decision. Do we put everything back in the box and walk away or do we take it all to the police? And it's quite a distinct difference in those two decisions. And by the end, by the time you've read everything, you will be on one side or the other. It's um, And I can't talk about it with you because then I'd give it away. But exactly. I know I know this what is side trouble, isn't it? it is. And I know what side I landed on. And, you know, I've 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 devoured the other books you've read. And correct me if I if I'm wrong in this thinking. But while this book has, you know, it, like it's witty, it's very fast paced. It felt a little darker. The, the themes felt a lot darker than than what you've written previously. Absolutely. I would say it's quite a bit darker. I mean, The Appeal and The Twyford Code, my first two novels, I would say in some ways it combines bits of both in that it's communications like The Appeal. There's lots of emails and texts and WhatsApps in there. But there's also transcriptions as well, like The Twyford Code. So I've really combined the two. But they've um, become a much darker story. And I wasn't particularly intending that to happen. But I, I'm very much... a uh, an organic uh, evolving writer I'll start with a blank page and let the characters take me where they're going to go so what I thought at the beginning might have been uh, you know light and, and funny maybe satirical um, no it took quite a dark turn and these characters took me to quite a serious story in the end that's not to say there's not um, lightness and and wit and humor in there but the story itself is um, yeah it's a dark it's a serious journey and it's um, I think the the novel is as thought provoking as it is entertaining you know it's um but it's it's also a wild ride because there is a little character in there um called ellie who is amanda's assistant and she transcribes all amanda's interviews but she also gets in her her own words of what she <laughs> thinks of the interviewee what she thinks of amanda if amanda is cutting corners or if she's not being entirely honest with the interviewee um ellie will say and that's the novel um moves on Ellie has more and more of a say and that happened quite organically she uh, was a character who talked her way into the narrative and she's uh, quite a light relief from the uh, from the main story so I, I love her at the end I love Amanda I love Oliver and I love Ellie <laughs> no, Ellie was fun and she's I hope she gets her own book but I don't know um... <laughs> oh you never know <laughs> <laughs> so you know you've worked as a journalist my my day job I'm in the same line of work and I was struck, like, from the very first page with your dedication, because you dedicate the book to several female journalist authors who 
kind of put it all out there in order to get a story. That's right. And uh, my lead character, um, Amanda, is, is very much like that. And when I worked as a journalist, I met a few of them, a few um, journalists who were so dedicated to the truth that they were prepared to do anything. They didn't care what anyone thought of them. They'd do and say anything to get their job done. I don't think I was ever quite like that. I was a little shyer mm. and a bit more sort of nervous. You no, know, I wasn't that, that kind of news hound. But I really looked up to these people who could really do the job. And yeah, Amanda is like that. And I wanted to dedicate the book to others who have been like that too, because it's the pursuit of the truth is not always a safe one. And it's not always a happy one. And, you know, I have that written in my notes here, this theme about like getting to the truth at all costs. And I think there are a lot of people who will argue that it the truth is the truth. It deserves to be told. It doesn't deserve to be kept in a safety deposit box somewhere. But on the other hand, everything isn't always as black and white as everyone likes to believe. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, sometimes that pursuit of the truth can uncover worse um, things that, are, that nobody really wants to know, that nobody should know. And yeah, there's, I, I love that sort of dilemma. That dilemma that really makes you think, what would I do? Because I think when you start the book, you think you're going to come down on the side of the truth, the truth at all costs. But by the end, it's, that's not always the case. And those wonderful um, dilemmas in life are, I think, where you find drama and they're why, where you find intrigue and where you find interest as a reader and a writer. So, yeah, I, uh, well, I certainly hope readers find it here in, in that in that safe deposit box that they have that that option to use again at the end. So I know this book comes out in the U.S. in January. Has it already been published in the U.K.? It has. It, it published in the U.K. in this January just gone. The U.S. has been a year behind um, the U.K., but that's uh, no longer. We, you've had the Christmas appeal exactly the same time. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and come next September, we're both back on track. Um, the Examiner, my, my novel after the Alpton Angels will both launch. We'll launch both sides of the Atlantic together. Oh, excellent! So we've, you've caught up. We've, we've got you back together after well, after the pandemic. It's it's finally happened. I was wondering if you know you you've heard from readers then about how what side of the dilemma they come down on. Oh, absolutely! Since January, I would say, from what I've people you know people's communication with me on uh, social media, it's fifty fifty. Oh, that's interesting. It's it's really interesting. Yeah, it's um, split straight down the middle, which I, I suppose that's a, that's good. That's a success <laughs> with a dilemma that you've yeah. got, uh, you know, uh, half of people thinking one thing, half thinking the other. Uh, but yeah, it's 50-50. Um, so I want to go back to your writing style because uh, you've talked about a little bit how you use transcripts or emails or letters. When you sit down to write a story, I imagine... You think of the story first and then you create all this evidence to go along with it. How do you decide which bits of your story get told in which way? You know, I, I'm not sure because <laughs> I don't do a whole lot of thinking before I sit down and write that first draft. I've always got a vague idea what I want to write about. So in um, the mysterious case of the Alberton Angels, I wanted to write about a true crime author who was investigating a historical crime. So I knew that much, but I, not much more. And I will 
to bring these characters to life gradually by writing correspondence to or from them or about them. So, for example, the first thing I wrote in this was a few templates that Amanda had made for herself because she was going to be emailing lots of people quickly. So she was making templates that she could email lots of people. And she was describing herself in very curt terms. I'm Amanda Bailey. I'm a true crime author. I've won this. I've done that. And this is what I want to do here. And in those templates, I felt I got her character. And so I was off with her. And that was how that was how she grew up. And that's how the book started. It's, it's sometimes quite difficult to explain how it's like a launch pad when you've got that main character. So I'll, I'll start with the main character, then I'll like, put feelers out into their lives and write other characters that are around them. Perhaps they're emailing someone, perhaps they're getting a text from somebody and gradually their life will emerge, will form in front of me. And then I can start the story because they will take me somewhere. And it's a, a strange way of working because I end up with a first draft. That's about 90,000 words. That's really four or five different novels stuck together because I've changed as these, these characters have led <laughs> me through a story. I've, I've changed the um, where the story is going so many times. So I'll go back and knowing what it's about by the end, I'll go back and change the beginning to match that end. And so my plotting and all of my preparation and planning that other sensible writers will do before they start I'll do at that stage I'll do later on and the grass is always greener I often look at you know intense plotters and think they must have such an easy time after that first draft whereas <laughs> I'm that's when my work starts um, so yeah I'm a, a pantser we call them pantsers and uh, you're a pantser or a plotter I think and, and I'm definitely a, you know a big pantser you know, I didn't realize this until just now as you were speaking, that the way you present your stories, it's it's what we as journalists get before we sit down to write our stories. Like that would be all the information we would gather, whether it's an interview with somebody or a news release or this little bit of research and lay it out all in front of us to write a cohesive story. You're doing that and then it's up to us to kind of weave the story together in our minds. Although you managed to do it with some mystery and it's not, you know, it's not a, a lead and a body and a conclusion. <laughs> but, <yeah. laughs> well, you know, it's partly um, the, the structure of this was inspired uh, when I used to edit um, trade magazines that went to people who sell beauty products, a very sort of a tiny niche in the publishing sector. I I'd do the magazine every month and then all of my source material, the press releases, notes and interviews and so on, I just shove them all into a file, put an elastic band around them and put them away just in case somebody questioned what was in the magazine. And I'd often look at that bundle of source material and I'd think, well, why did I bother writing the magazine? Let's just print that. <laughs> and people can just read the press releases themselves. You, know, you just have to figure out an that, order and people can deduce it themselves. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say uh, that was at one of my lower moments when I had actually burned out. <laughs> you know, I wasn't like that when I was young and hungry. <laughs> but yeah, eventually I thought, wow. I, I think but, everybody and, and hits that also, point, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they do. But of course, it, it, was, it proved quite, quite good because it inspired me to uh, create this structure for the Alberton Angels. So is your your next book, The Examiner, I think you told us, is the title. Is it going to be the the Janice Hallert we all we all know and love, or are you going to surprise us? It's certainly um, an unconventional narrative, again, and it has plenty of um, WhatsApp texts and emails. Um, but also, I mean, it's called The Examiner, and it's set in a university, and it starts off with a 
a university ex examiner who has all the coursework and all the final essays for a master's degree in multimedia art. And he's read all of this and he says he thinks one of those students on that course died and all the others and their tutor are covering it up. But we need to read it all too and find out if he's correct. I love it. <laughs> How long do I have to wait? September? September, I'm afraid. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I, I'll go back and read the other ones maybe while I'm at it, while I wait. <laughs> but in the meantime, uh, you can get your, your Janice Hallett kick by uh, reading The Christmas Appeal, a novella. I mean, it's short, it's sweet, it's great for like sitting around Christmas Eve if you want to ignore the family. And then <laughs> it is a whole lot of fun. I have to say, it it's, although it's, there's murder in there and there's a bit of darkness, it's a it's you know a huge scream if, of a ride. If anything, uh, you know, if you're having a tough time with your family, you can look at it and be like, well, at least that's not the kind of Christmas I'm having. Totally, absolutely. <laughs> that's it's perfect for that. And then in January, of course, uh, we look forward to the mysterious case of the Alberton Angels. Janice Hallett, as always, it's a pleasure to talk with you. It's a pleasure to read your books. And I can't wait for the next one. Oh, thank you for having me, Lisa. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Here's hoping that your holiday celebrations don't feature any unwanted bodies, living or otherwise, and that you have lots of good things and new books awaiting you in the new year. I asked my next guest, Susanna Lane, whose new book, The Ladies Rewrite the Rules, comes out in January, what she's most looking forward to. I'm actually looking forward to having January over <laughs> because it's it's going to be exciting, but it's going to be just really, really um, busy. So I'm I'm super excited that, you know, for the early part of the year and then maybe towards the middle of the year. Um, do some traveling with my husband. That's what I'm looking forward to. Until then, you can find me on X and Instagram at Lisa T Books. Keep turning those pages. I'm Lisa T. <laughs> <laughs>